Welcome to episode 20 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast that discusses and examines the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And it's been three whole weeks since we had this gentleman on, so of course we brought him back. Welcome back, John M. Wilson. June 2016 is getting close. It's not just this really far off date anymore. Remember when we started this thing and it was 75 plus weeks away? Yep, and now it's barely five months. We we have passed the one year mark since we did our first recording. I believe that was October of 14 that we recorded our first episode. So it's, wow, this has been a project, mm-hmm. Blaine. It has been. Actually, yeah, John was there for the very first recording on October 12, 2014 for the episode that aired December 31st. We are now in the month of December 2015, as we're recording this one. But uh, we are here to talk about, and whenever you were asking what stories do you want to talk about, I was really excited to select this one, uh, because Secret Invasion was, it was the big thing that was happening at Marvel when I got back into comics. And as most listeners probably can relate, whatever's going on in comics when you first get into comics... That is forever the definition of awesome. And things mm-hmm. might get better after that, but a lot of times we experience a feeling of things just not quite measuring up to the way they used to be. And for me, Secret Invasion is the way things used to be. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to be talking about this story. Yeah, as am I. So let's get the technical details out of the way. We're dealing with just issues one to eight of the miniseries itself and not the tie-ins. It's written by Brian Michael Bendis. Penciled by Lionel Francis Yu, inked by Mark Morales, colored every issue by Laura Martin, although she did have assists by Emily Warren and Christina Strain on some issues, lettered from start to finish by Chris Eliopoulos, edited by associate editors Molly Laser, who was there solely coming in. There's one issue that she did joint work as associate editor with Tom Brennan, and then from that point forward, Janine Schaefer was the sole associate editor on the book. Tom Briefwort was the editor of this right from the start, as well as others, but we'll get into that later. And Joe Casada was editor-in-chief. Cover dates range from June 2008 to January 2009. Release dates range from April 1st, 2008 to December 4th, 2008. As already mentioned, this came in at number 20 in the countdown. So we're in the top 20. We could be a radio show now. Oh, yeah. yeah we could do the countdown of the biggest hits and the Billboard classics. This is Casey Kaysen. Yes, a.k.a. Robin the Boy Wonder. But anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. Can I go ahead and... I don't have the format list in front of me. Can I go ahead and get into to how I relate to this story? Sure. All right. So, as I've said before, and will probably say again, uh, my comics experience was kind of segmented. I, I, I had a collection of Spider-Man issues whenever I was a kid. And then I read some more Spider-Man and other things in the early 90s for only a couple of years. But my current comics reading slash collecting experience really was kicked off by the Iron Man film in 2008. At that point, I was already picking up some Star Wars comics, but I had told myself not to read superhero comics because I know how my brain works. I knew that would open the floodgates of interest and desire to read more. So I wasn't reading them. But Iron Man hit and I was like, I could just take a little bit of peril, just, just a little bit. So I decided to read some Iron Man. And then I started getting modern comics, and Secret Invasion was the event of the day. I was only a couple of months late starting, so I got the the issues that I had missed and started reading forward, and oh my gosh, 
I was so absorbed in this story. And, and as it was coming out, because it's an eight-month-long story, with the last issue or so having some delays, so it took, you know, even longer to come out, the backlog of recent Marvel events, such as Civil War and House of M, I was able to go back and explore some of that and sort of read the New Avengers run leading into Secret Invasion and get the whole backstory that Bendis had been building leading into this saga. So this was my Marvel introductory experience to modern comics, and I ate it up with a spoon. Now, I don't know if you're going to be as as excited about it as I am, Blaine. Sometimes you and I see differently about comics, but but that's okay. I'm just saying up front, it's a safe place. You're allowed to have a different opinion. We'll just have to go into this with the understanding that you're wrong. Well, this is one of the events that really grabbed me. Oh, good. Because part of that was because like this wasn't just something I came into. I have been reading The Avengers by Bendis since he took over with Disassembled. So I was reading everything. I had been reading the Marvel events. So I had, we'll talk about it a little bit more in issue two, but I was very much on board with Civil War. I had been reading all of this coming up to it. And then there was an issue of New Avengers where Elektra gets stabbed and becomes a scroll when she hits. And that's the reveal of the secret invasion was going on. And, you know, we found out that scrolls had been there for a long time. Bendis had his Illuminati series going and we found out Black Bolt had been a scroll for some time. And we didn't know how long in the backstory Bendis had this set up. So in the time between the death of Elektra and the release of Secret Invasion number one, I already had the Git Corp DVD ROMs for every title that had been released, including Fantastic Four and the Avengers. I had enough others that when I went online for a complete list of every appearance of the Skrulls, I realized I was only missing about 15 or 20. So I hopped online. The ones I was missing were not terribly expensive. I bought them all to go through every appearance of the Skrulls. So Operation Galactic Storm, Skrull Kill Crew, the Marvel Generation Lost. I already had the Marvel premiere issues that introduced 3D Man, because I'm the kind of guy that doesn't like gaps, especially in a short series like Marvel Premiere. And I had a number of those issues reprinted in Essentials, so I grabbed the rest when I was getting my Nick Fury collection. So I was going through everything trying to figure out who was a Skrull and who wasn't, because so much of that was out of sight. I really enjoyed this as it came out. I actually enjoyed it a little bit less on a reread for plot structure reasons that we can get into. But yeah, for this, I was all in. I catalog my comics in a database. So I was going back and rereading the entire Bendis run as this came out, because there were tie-in issues that showed exactly which characters were replaced by scrolls and when. And going through my database and replacing things like, you know, Yellow Jacket, Henry Christopher, Hank Pym with Yellow Jacket, Critty Nall because that's the name of the scroll that replaced him from his replacement onward and doing everything. So my database will tell me when Spider-Woman is Jessica Drew and when Spider-Woman is Varenka. All of that was there. So I was yeah, I was very much involved in trying to figure out who we could trust and who we couldn't and what was going on. Marvel did some different things with their marketing at this point. So they had someone on YouTube. They had some really creative marketing for this story. I feel like really taking advantage of the modern internet era mm -hmm. in ways that I had never seen before. I don't know if they've ever been done before, but I had never seen before. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the background behind Secret Invasion, Home Invasion? The background behind it? No. I just know, I just know about the, uh, the YouTube series. Okay. Yeah. That's, 
that was the, the YouTube series that started. So basically they had what looked like a typical teenage blog and it was running for, I think about eight or 10 months before you found out that it was scripted and fictional and tied into a Marvel event. Because there was someone who just looked like a typical teenage girl blogging about her life. And her annoying brother. Yeah. And all of a sudden, one of the episodes, there's a Skrull invasion. And so cool. Yeah, that actually <laughs> <laughs> it launched into a webcomic series that was later collected in print called Secret Invasion Home Invasion, which annoyed me slightly because I was 99% convinced that Sasquatch was meant to be a Skrull. And then as a result of that series, he wasn't. But anyway. This tied in, and this is something Bendis had been working on in the time of Civil War. He'd been working on it since Avengers Disassembled. We mentioned a little bit in Avengers Disassembled, there's a Quicksilver that appears during the big fight, and we see him getting hit on the head in one panel, and then in another panel we see a scroll falling. And the Skrulls were the only major Avengers villain that had a very slight appearance. There's just that one scroll in the background, and that's it. And that's because this was being set up. So in the Avengers finale, when Quicksilver says, oh, I wasn't here, that Quicksilver you saw must have been the Scarlet Witch is doing. No, that was a Skrull. And the characters drew the wrong conclusions because they didn't know what they were building towards. And, and, and then you have, you know, slightly, slightly more blatant. You have Elektra helping with the breakout of his opening new Avengers arc and being hired to do it by a shadowy person. Yeah. And Bendis has said... I was new in comics. I had just been handed this title. I had no idea how long I was going to be writing, but I had an idea of what I wanted to do. But I didn't have the go-ahead to do it, so I just put these elements in the story, and maybe I'd be able to follow up on them, and maybe I wouldn't. But they were there. He had the idea from the beginning to do this. And here we are, you know, several years later, I think New Avengers is in the 40s around the time of Secret Invasion? Yeah, I want to say that the death of Electra was 41 or 42. Okay. And so the the who do you trust, which I think should be whom do you trust, but I'm not sure. I think uh, Deadpool, Deadpool summed that up best in you know the Deadpool Kills trilogy that we talked about earlier, where it's like, you know, it de- depends on the scale of who you're talking about. So Thanos is a whom, but the armadillo is a who. <laughs> I don't think grammatic syntax listens to the importance of personages, but I'll go with it. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, yeah, there was just so much they did to build into this. And this is, I guess, the fourth in a series series of major Marvel events that were just building upon each other from Disassembled to House of M to Civil War to this. So many things are going on and building on each other in Marvel. And it's just, it was such an exciting time to be reading comics. It was. And this was conceived as a storyline in the Avengers. So at the time that Disassembled came out, David Finch didn't know why he was explicitly told, this is the only scroll you're allowed to draw. He wanted to add more because he felt they belonged there. Only Bendis and Brevoort knew about this plan. And it wasn't until after Civil War was mapped out once someone had an idea to take one of the characters and do something with them, that's when Bendis and Brevoort said, no, we're not going to do that. That doesn't work. And they said, well, why not? Well, because a character's a scroll. And the room went, what? So it was at one of the Marvel retreats that that came out. And Bendis long thought that people got one event each. He somehow didn't think he'd be assigned to another event. Part of that was because the sales on at least the last few issues of House of M were not what people were hoping for. So his secret invasion he was planning to do is just an Avengers storyline. And this is one of the cases where Brevoort 
stepped up and said, no, a story of this scale needs to touch the entire Marvel Universe. This is not just confined to the Avengers. This is an event. Which happens, you know, modern times with relative frequency, especially if you're considered a big shot writer in the in the uh, company you work for. It has happened previously with less frequency. We'll take a single character's story and expand it. I think one of the less the least stellar examples of this is DC's Millennium from the late 80s, where mm-hmm. they took a simple, rather small scale Green Lantern story and turned it into an eight-week, two-month universe-wide event. But nowadays, you know, you have it happening quite a bit. But this is definitely one of the greater examples of you have a story idea where it only makes sense that something of this nature would have a vast and broad scope. And it's the kind of thing where nowadays you look back at other stories that do have a similar scope in the nature of the story, and yet they don't seem to have as far-reaching a consequence, that you don't really see the effects of a story being mm-hmm. felt the way they should be. This story, I think, does it right. It does. It it fits in well with a lot of it. So this is, if we want to get into the significance of the story, this was a, a turning point in continuity of the Marvel Universe. This followed Civil War, so there was already issues between the heroes, where you know some are saying, you know, we should register with the government. Some were saying no. So we had the mighty Avengers led by Iron Man, which were pro-registration and all registered with the government. There's the new Avengers led by Luke Cage that were not. When this came out, a lot of people were saying, oh, the leader of the other group must be a Skrull. That explains why their viewpoint is so diametrically opposed to ours, even though that was not true in either case. This was the height of the era where the heroes didn't trust each other. It really came out in this particular story. So the basic plot for this this is the part where I say the the structure comes into play with where my concerns with the story are and why I found I didn't enjoy it as much rereading it as I had the first time. Because reading these eight issues in isolation, the issue with the structure is that it's all third act. So in storytelling, we usually have a three-act structure. The first act is where we find out the status quo, things start in motion, we have our inciting incident, and typically the first act is broken at what they consider the point of no return. So, for example... Lord of the Rings, if you follow the way they were formatted in the movies, that's actually broken quite nicely into the first, second, and third act. So first act, they have, you know, three-act structure within each film, but if you look at Lord of the Rings as a whole, the first act breaks when the fellowship breaks. The second act is when you get a reversal, and sometimes things change and we realize what's really going on. I would say that for here, the first act is really from disassembled into Civil War. The second act, you know, is when we get into the reveal of the lectures of scroll and everything. And the second act ends where Secret Invasion begins. Yeah, really the first issue of Secret Invasion is that point of no return turning point that you were describing. That's where the fit hits the shan, so to speak. Everything goes to pot. And it's also a really major grabber because you're opening this story with a lot of really intense stuff happening. And I can see what you're saying because that... You can't really keep that level of of gobsmackery, <laughs> to, to invent a word, going through the course of events. So they have to keep on doing really crazy stuff. And I enjoy the crazy stuff. So I, I, will, I, will, I will stick to my guns there. But I do see what you're saying with that. And I, I feel like, you know, the man himself could dis- discuss the point with us if he were here. But based on what I've read of Bendis' interviews, I feel like that three-act structure 
that you were just describing, that was his plan. When he sat down to write Avengers, that was the story he was telling. Mm -hmm. I think that stuff that comes after Secret Invasion was stuff that was developed later in his mind and the minds of Marvel to follow up on these events. Because I I feel like this is the climax and closure of Bendis' plan that he set out to do when he started writing. Yeah, it, it does feel that way. We do have a new era, and obviously he continued writing. Well, we should probably do a, a more specific plot synopsis of each of them. Because when we talk about what came <laughs> later, it's actually a big part of what's following. Part of what engaged me in this is that I was able to guess a big part of the ending that a lot of people said came out of nowhere, based on a combination of what's on the pages here and what did not appear in the Marvel solicits a few months down the road. But we'll get to that after we go through it. So. The first issue starts off with years ago. This is actually recapping something that would have happened in Fantastic Four comics from about the mid-80s. 1980s? Okay. Yeah, when Galactus actually ate the Skrull homeworld. And now we find there's a religious sect with a queen that says, okay, this is what was predicted, and now we're going forward. I Okay, see, I don't really know the backstory on this. I thought this might have been like an Annihilation Wave tie-in or something. Uh, No, Galactus ate the Skrull homeworld before Annihilation started. Okay. Okay. Way, way before, if it's mid eighties, way before. Yeah. I just, I was just trying to guess the backstory on this. So that, thank you for that. Cause that was a tip that I did not have. Yep. Yeah. So from there, we cut to the modern day where Tony Stark is telling Hank Pym and Reed Richards, we killed Electra. She was a scroll. None of us saw this coming. We cut from there to the peak, which is the headquarters of sword headed by Abigail Brand. And, you know, Dum Dum Dugan is there. He's well respected. And then we intercut back and forth between sort of the brain trust, the peak, and Spider-Woman communicating with the Avengers team saying, hey, there's an incoming bogey. There's a ship that's about to land in the Savage Land. Iron Man just called me in because Sword notified him. Do you want to beat him there? So everybody is heading down to the Savage Land. And once they're there, they find the ship. The teams are at odds with each other. And then everything happens. It's a coordinated assault. So Dum Dum Dugan... The one that's on the peak turns out to be a scroll and sabotages and blows up the peak. There's a few people that survive because of their immediate defenses. And because of their name brand characters. Yep. <laughs> brand. I didn't mean to do that. Sorry. Yeah. Jarvis is a scroll and he's revealed to be a scroll when he launches a virus that takes out all of Stark Tech, including the armor that Tony is wearing right now. And this is the time whenever the armor is not just on Tony. It's integrated into his system because of the extremis. Yep. It's his, his, his technology is very much a part of his bio functions at this point. Oh, yeah. We get the helicarrier falling out of the sky under Maria Hill's command because of the Starktick virus. We get Novar, who is the Kree soldier that appeared in Marvel Boy, the, I believe, it was Mark Miller miniseries. At least Mark Miller as, as the writer. I want to say Grant Morrison did Marvel Boy. You could very well be right. My brain was trying to decide between the two and went with Mark Miller. <laughs> I've not read it, but I'm pretty sure it was Grant Morrison. Okay. But yeah, in any event, he's the Kree warrior from an alternate Earth who is here. The cube is down and he realizes, okay, something's going on. It's time to go. And then the other major element here is that Norman Osborn is currently in charge of the Thunderbolts and the Captain Marvel that we saw return in Civil War is attacking their home base. We go from there to the Baxter building where a scroll who appears to be a tourist, takes the form of the Invisible Woman and opens up the negative zone right in the middle of the Baxter building. So lots of really, really big elements <laughs> happen. Yeah. 
most of which we're going to see playing out over succeeding issues. The one major exception to that is the Fantastic Four storyline, which really goes to pot here and basically gets wrapped up at the end of the series. But if you want to find out what happened between, you have to go read the miniseries. Yeah. That's that's true to varying degrees with some of the other ones, but it's definitely true of the Fantastic Four part. Yep. Now, at this stage, the Captain America that we have running around is Bucky, and he's not a member of either Avengers team. So when this ship that crash landed in the Savage Land opens up and we get classic characters, so we get, you know, the original looking Luke Cage, we get the Vision, and the original Vision has been dead since disassembled. We get the Jean Grey Phoenix. We get Steve Rogers' Captain America alive and well. We get Mockingbird alive and well. We get Jessica Jones dressed as Jewel alive and well. The Scarlet Witch is back. Ms. Marvel in her original costume. Yeah, there's a lot of that there for fans to latch onto to say, oh man, you know, if they didn't like what happened with Scarlet Witch and Disassembled, now they have hope that that wasn't really Scarlet Witch. And these are all characters from varying eras. It's not that this, the implication is not that the Scrolls came in and kidnapped a bunch of heroes one night, but that they have been replacing heroes periodically for years. Wolverine is in his cat whisker mask from his very first appearance. Oh yeah. Like these go back a long time. We've got Hawkeye involved here in his original outfit. And it, <laughs> the beast comes out with glasses saying, Oh my stars and garters. I was gonna say sweet Christmas. So it's just it's just, you know, really pulling out classic lines here. It's great. Yep. And then we see a little bit more with Abigail Brand, and then we go back to the Stark Laboratory with Hank Pym and Reed Richards working. And Reed figures out how the Skrulls managed to mask themselves just in time to learn that Hank Pym is one of them. Oh, wow. He pulls out a gun of some sort of, you know, alien technology and blasts Reed Richards into rubber bandy goo. And as he turns into a scroll, he quotes the oft-repeated line, he loves you, which is implied from the beginning, but it's explicitly stated at the end to be a reference to the scroll god. Yeah. And yeah, we'll, we'll get into it, but it's we stated that these are extremists and terrorists. Issue two, we go back to the Savage Land, where both teams of Avengers are united against the ones that were on the spacecraft. There's a lot of arguments about who's Skrulls and who aren't, but one thing that they all agree on is that they should be fighting, except <laughs> the Carol Danvers that we're familiar with gets the Tony Stark that we're familiar with out of the field of, of fire, saying, hey, you need to fix yourself. The Vision kind of messes with the Sentry's head, and takes his unstable persona and just gives it that little nudge it takes to, to make the sentry take himself out of the fight. And, the vi and that is the first explicit clue we have that these heroes, there's something shady going on with them. If it weren't already implied, but this is the first explicit clue because this vision, who should know jack all about the sentry, begins feeding very explicitly and directly into the sentry's split psyche. and manipulates him right out of the picture. Yep. So uh, cut from there to Carol Danvers and Tony Stark, where, you know, Tony says, the world is in danger. You go back to the mainland. You find out what happened. Gather the initiative. Gather everyone who's left. Carol says, what are you going to do? And Tony's response, I built my first armor from a lot less than this. I'm going to do the one thing the Skrulls can't imitate. Use my brain. We get more combat in the woods when Mockingbird kills a Hawkeye. And, you know, they take out a Spider-Man. Hawkeye comes in and tests this Mockingbird and is absolutely convinced that she really is his ex-wife. So it's a great moment because she knows every detail that he asks her for. So whatever's going on with these heroes, it's not, or at least it doesn't appear to be, a simple answer. 
So the vision was nefarious, okay, but Mockingbird's real. That means Mockingbird's back. And we know she's been gone since the 80s. So there's something going on here. And the mystery is so intriguing as you're reading through. Oh, yeah. We cut back to Manhattan as the Baxter building is being sucked into the negative zone. And the Young Avengers are witnessing, okay, we've got to do something here. Love the Young Avengers. Oh, yeah. And then it ends with a two-page splash of scrolls with various combinations of abilities. So we've got a scroll with combination of the the thing in the Human Torch, another one who's got Archangel with energy blasts, another one who looks like Black Bolt and Doctor Strange. And it, it, it's great because one of the things that the scrolls have never been that fantastic at is, <laughs> with no pun intended, is emulating superpowers. The one big exception to that being the Super Scroll. But he's always been the Super Scroll with a singular definitive article. And now we have a huge horde of multi-powered Super Scrolls invading Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, Carol Danvers has it figured out where what's going on in the Savage Land is designed to keep them off kilter and preoccupied while other things are going on elsewhere. So issue three, we get the shield halo carrier actually in the Bermuda Triangle when Jarvis shows up and says, hey, this is it. He's so unassuming. He's just like, I was wondering if you'd be ever so kind as to offer us your full and total surrender as he stands there with his long coat and scarf and bald Jarvis head. He's just, he, he's, it's, it's a great scene because Maria Hill is, you know, all the shield guys with guns and everything. And, and, and Jarvis is like, hello, um, could you give up, please? <laughs> yeah. Which is actually a nice little symmetry. When we cut back to Thunderbolts Mountain, we see Norman Osborn behaving differently than the others, right? Every other hero we've seen has been ready to fight. Now, Captain Marvel is trashing the Thunderbolts, but he's hesitant before killing a character. And Norman steps up and says, you can't do it, can you? And my guess is you're not exactly who you're dressed as. My name's Norman Osborn. This is my office you trashed and my people you smacked around. Would you like to have a drink and talk about it? And this scene gets more play in the actual Thunderbolts or, or whatever the book was called at this point title. But we get, we get all the salient points in the ser- main series itself. Yeah, but it, it, this is laying groundwork for the new status quo that will follow it. Just mm-hmm. seeing his attitude. We cut from here to the Avengers Initiative. And Yellow Jacket, who we know as a Skrull, shows up and says, guys, this is what you, this is it. This is what you've trained for. It's time. So then they rally the troops. We cut back to more young Avengers trying to hold the line in the middle of Manhattan. And we see that they've got multiple powers. We go to the Savage Land and Spider-Woman, who readers know from issues not in this eight-issue miniseries, is actually the leader of the Skrull invasion. That comes up kind of matter of fact later, but the readers already knew it before Secret Invasion number one began. And this is during the uh, highly sexualized era of Spider-Woman art, as opposed to the more reserved renditions that she has nowadays. I like both for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this one, it really shows her work and the way she works, because she finds Tony, but she doesn't set it up as a fight. She walks in, just says, you can relax now. You did it. Your work on Earth is done. You will go down in our people's history as the greatest soldier the Armada has ever had, and you will... Always have and forever have my undying love, the love of your queen. And then it just continues where she's basically saying, you know, I'm sorry the truth had to be hidden from you. We had to brainwash you to make you think you're the real Tony Stark. But yeah, you're one of us and good job. We're done. Just totally throwing Tony off kilter. And so she's bringing in the idea of sleeper scroll agents. Oh, yeah. I will tell you, Blaine, Mm -hmm. by issue three, I I had entered the fray. 
I had entered the reading experience. Uh, I think I got two a little bit after it came out, but I went to the store the day that three came out and I bought it and I read it and I, well, we'll, we'll get to the very last page, but, but yeah. Oh yeah. The last page in this, again, if there's any feeling to this is it's because it really caps off a multi-year tapestry that Bendis had been weaving, including Secret War, where Nick Fury took a bunch of agents into Latveria for an illegal war and then had to disappear because of that action. So when we get the last few pages where we cut back to Times Square and see the new Avengers and the initiative trying to hold the line against these scrolls and getting their butts kicked, only to have, you know, earthquakes hit and major energy blasts and all this happen. And then we cut to Nick Fury and the team that would then become the Secret Warriors saying, you know, and Nick Fury's in there with a massive gun saying, okay, commandos, let's turn this thing around. I'm a big Nick Fury fan. And this was one of those pages that made me just go, oh my God. Yeah, seeing him come in, seeing the vision get his head blasted, and seeing the idea that Tony Stark, the top cop superhero, now that Nick Fury's off the scene, to find out that he is a scroll, which at this point, that's what you're left with. At the end of this issue, you're left with Tony Stark, Iron Man, is a sleeper agent scroll. Oh yeah. I, I, I couldn't contain I was calling everyone I knew to 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 just blather about this. And 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 they had to put up with their 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 comics nerd friend whenever they didn't really care, just going off on how awesome Marvel comics were. It was everything that was cool, all in one twenty-page package. Oh my gosh! Oh yeah. Then we go from there to issue four, where we find Reed Richards being basically tortured and stretched over a scroll monologue. We see Abigail Brand in space trying to get them down. We see Ryan Reynolds freaking out. We see Captain Marvel making it back to Manhattan and seeing the damage and destruction there. Ms. Marvel. Yeah, sorry, Ms. Marvel. Carol Danvers. And she sees Nick Fury in the field. And this is just it. They're saying, let's wrap this up. They're fighting. They join the fray. There's a bit of an interesting moment here because Nick Fury claims to have some sort of ability to see who's a scroll and who's not. And he shoots Ms. Marvel, who's not a scroll. So maybe he shot her just because he's not trusting anyone right now. But he claims to have awareness, so I don't know exactly what that was all about. Maybe it was intentional misleading of the reader. Maybe it was Mm -hmm. Nick Fury talking out of his rear. Which he does a lot. I don't know. He does. As Nick Fury, he he makes up crap on the fly and makes it sound authoritative, just like... Just like Dr. Crusher accused Captain Picard of doing in that one episode where they had each other's brains for a second. Yeah, when they could read thoughts back in tail end of season, season seven. seven. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so we're going from here. We see Yellow Jacket. And a lot of this, we get dialogue by the Skulls laying over saying, well, yeah, they don't know who to trust. And I think that's what this is playing into, because that's the narration from the Skulls at this time is they don't know who to trust. Right when Nick Fury blasts guys, we cut to the Savage Land, you know, where... Spider-Woman is still messing with Tony's head, and then, you know, the Black Widow comes in and just starts shooting them point blank. And, you know, when she drives them out of here, she's the one that comes in and, you know, Spider-Woman sees her coming and just escapes. Black Widow comes in, you didn't happen to see where she went, did you? And Tony's just going, uh, oh, Jessica. Tony, it's Natasha Romanova, the Black Widow, can you hear me? And he's going, and I can't scroll. And Black Widow's just, yeah, she did a number on you, huh? Tony, I'm going to hit you with a shot of adrenaline. It'll hurt, but it'll get you on your feet for about an hour, hopefully. She jabs him in the neck, and then, you're not a scroll. she was working you over, focus. And Tony's going, how do you know you're not? They poisoned you, Tony. No, no, they could have killed me, they didn't. 
they're working you because there's five people on the planet that could stop this and you're one of them. It's not enough to take you out, they want you defeated. They could have killed you with a poison monster ball before you went to bed. They're killing themselves just to get to you. Killing you isn't the point. They want you to do to you what you did to them. Tony, Iron Man, scroll or not, I'm asking you right now, do you want to kill me or kill them? Them. Let's go with that feeling then and worry about the rest later. Which is a great scene. It's a great mm-hmm. interchange, and it brings the reader to a point of trusting Iron Man again, if only temporarily. I thought the matzo ball line was interesting because that's bringing the Jewish culture and awareness of, of the writer to a Russian character who is very explicitly not. But, you know, it's 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 just what a little, a little thing. Yep. Conversation is interrupted when Wolverine walks in and Natasha just fills him full of bullets. She's like, give me the word, give it to me. And he says, carrot sticks. And she goes, okay, sorry about that, Logan. I'm shooting first and asking questions later until further notice. Now heal up and go recon for Jessica Drew if you see your slicer. Where'd Carol go? <laughs> this, is, this is a great Black Widow moment. She's like, okay. It really, really is. She is awesome. Yeah, after I put a, a magazine into you, then I find out that, you know, you're really you. To be fair, she did that knowing Wolverine could take it. Yeah. And then she would, ha- she would have to use that much to put him down. Oh, yeah. And stop him for a moment. Yeah, so from here we get to Abigail Brand, who's managed to infiltrate some of the places that the Skulls are in charge of, sees what they've got going on, sees their intel, and we get her reaction. We cut back to the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier. Oh, and she sees that they're torturing Reed, so that becomes her goal. Yeah, and, you know, again, Maria Hill talking with Jarvis, who says they're ready to accept their surrender. In Brooklyn, the Hood, who is essentially being set up as the new kingpin, saying, no more Earth is bad for business, get everyone. So the villains are going to be coming in to help take this out, and it ends with what appears to be the return of both Thor and Captain America. So for those who've been reading for a while, yeah, Thor had been off the table for a long time and was doing his own thing, even when he did come back under the the pen of JMS. And as we've already said, the Captain America we had running around was Bucky, but he wasn't really in the limelight or the spotlight. Issue 5 opens back at Thunderbolts Mountain with Norman Osborn again saying, talking to the Captain Marvel saying, let me tell you, I know something about having voices in your head, voices pulling you in different directions. And I also know something, this might sound strange and it is, but I know something about not being sure if you're pink or green. Which is a great line from Norman Osborn. Oh, it is. But I do like the way he takes this. And it, it does seem like an honest exchange from him saying, and I can tell you this, cliche that it is, only one person can decide who you are inside and out, and that is you. And here you are, you've been sent here to kill us, but I see that you can't. May I ask, this form that you've chosen as our destroyer, was it picked for you by the Skrull Empire, or did you pick it yourself? It was It was picked for me. Were you a sleeper agent? By that, I mean, did you know who you were all along? Did you know why you were here? No. You thought you were the Kree warrior Marvel. Yes. The man of honor, the warrior Earth's protector. You thought you were here to protect us in our time of need. I am so sorry. Which really is a very parallel conversation to the one that Black Widow just had with Tony. Yeah, It's, you know, who do you feel like? Who do you think you are? And for Tony, he feels like Tony wants to kill Skrulls, but he is Tony. For Captain Marvel, he feels like Marvel the Kree warrior, but he's not. Oh, yeah. You know, so Captain Marvel leaves. The backup shows up. It says, Director Osborn, what is this? What happened? And Norman Osborn's just, we're under attack. Get the Thunderbolt Alpha team up and on their feet. Get transport up and ready in five. Matt Gargan is somewhere off campus. Get him. If anyone does anything out of character, shoot them on sight. Not everyone is who they say they are they today. There's a bit from the Norman Osborn thread that doesn't show up in this book, but either at this point he goes off to do or he has already done, he gets a weapon that he's going to use later. Nick Fury shows up with a big gun and it's Nick Fury. 
Norman Osborn is going to show up with a big gun later, and they felt the need to tell, well, how did he get that particular big gun that could do that particular thing it's going to do? And so that gets filled in in one of the side stories. Yeah, I believe it's actually the first three issues of the Deadpool series that spun off of this. Okay. Because Nick Fury had hired Deadpool to get that gun only in the last second, and it's not there, and it closes on a shot of Norman Osborn smiling. Okay. But in any event, we go from there to Nick Fury with the Young Avengers, you know, and the surviving members of the Initiative, and he's just taking control. We see the Skrulls are taking on the personas of all sorts of celebrities to assure people that, yeah, the invasion is done. We don't mean to disrupt your lives. We just want to add to them. We're not here to take anything away. And the, the choice of the choices of images are so great because there's so many personages in here. I mean, you have Stephen Colbert, you have Barack Obama, you have uh, superhero big people like Magneto, you have South Park characters talking to the crowd. It's it's a really great montage of images. But the interesting thing here is that we're on five of eight. And the invasion is done. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Marvel's marketing ticked over from who do you trust to embrace change. And that became their tagline. The scrolls are here. This is the way things are now. Oh, yeah. Cut from there to low Earth orbit where Abigail Brand has been caught on the scroll ship by scrolls. Only she plays it out. You know, the scrolls who find her asking her to identify herself. She goes, excuse me, identify yourself. I don't answer to you. I'm part of the Queen's delegation. And which delegation? We're at war, soldier. Don't aim your weapon at a superior officer. Give me that. And she just basically manages to to fake her authority enough to disarm them and then uses their own weapons to gun them down. Abigail Brand needs more needs more stuff because she's great. She is. Yeah, she does manage to break Reed free. And this is one of the dialogue exchanges that would be a little bit tougher to follow if you were only reading these issues where he's saying, you know, I know what we need. They needed my brain to do it. She's like, what do you mean by that? That was revealed in other issues. Cut from there back to the Bermuda Triangle. And there's a great piece of dialogue from Maria Hill tying into the last time we saw Nick Fury, right? Where Jarvis is, you know, going on and on about, we have won. This is done. We're ready to accept your surrender. Shield was just a tool. Maria Hill's like, oh, sorry, was I interrupting you? I was telling you that when all this is over, I'm going to make a t-shirt. I've never done that before, but I definitely will now. And do you know what that t-shirt is going to say? Well, you know, I'm trying to tell you something. A man, a man I respect came to me a few months ago and he told me, he said, S.H.I.E.L.D. makes this very cool robot, for lack of a better term, a life model decoy. You know, for use in espionage or covert operations. He told me to start using them, that doing so wasn't cheating or a cop-out. It was just a smart tactical maneuver. So I'm saying to you, when I'm done here, I'm going to make a t-shirt that says, Nick Fury was right. And as they shoot her when she's giving this speech, we find out that the Maria Hill, if they've got their weapons trained on, is a life model decoy. The real Maria Hill has a jetpack and a sniper rifle, and she's ready to start taking them down as she calls for the helicarrier to self-destruct. There's little more that you need in life as a spy and shield head operative than a sniper rifle and a jetpack. I mean, you basically got yourself covered at that point. Oh, yeah. So, meanwhile, the Skrull Captain Marvel shows up in the Skrull Armada and helps Reed Richards and Abigail Brand get out. They're still fighting in the Savage Land with Kazar and Shauna the She-Devil showing up until Reed Richards lands with technology he built that forces the Skrulls to take on their Skrull appearances. And this is the reveal that this Bobby, who knew something that only the real Bobby and Hawkeye knew, is actually a Skrull. And it's heartbreaking, heart-wrenching whenever... the the, and the, the art does it so well, because on one page you have this big blast, and you can look on the page, there's this whole crowd of shots, 
and you can see all the different green people. You might not notice Bobby in that scene, but at the bottom of the page, Clint has Bobby standing behind him over his shoulder in the shadow. And as he turns to her, we the reader turn to see she's a scroll and she doesn't get it. She literally honestly doesn't understand how she could be a scroll because like so many of these other superheroes in this scene, she, you know, had that knowledge removed from her. Spider Woman laid that concept groundwork back in issue three. Here we're getting a big payoff that takes Clint Barton's heart and shreds it into little tiny pieces and put all those pieces in a box and put that box in a box and mail it to Avengers headquarters and they hit it with a hammer. Yeah, it's, it is brutal. We see there's actually a similar moment with Luke Cage that's a lot easier to miss, right? The Jessica Jones scroll is down on her knees looking at her hands and Luke Cage just has his back to her. Like he cannot face this scroll and then Zabu eats it. Yeah, I, I actually have missed the, the significance of that moment up till now because she's dressed as Jewel and I don't, yeah. I don't link Jewel with Jessica Jones and Luke Cage closely enough in my mind. So I'm just now realizing what exactly was going on there. That's, that's pretty intense. Oh yeah. And we've got Reed Richards attacking the invisible woman scroll, demanding to know where his children are. And yeah, so we've got people realizing, yeah, Spider Woman's in charge and you know, Luke Cage is looking at Clint over Mockingbird's body saying, Clint, leave it. And Clint Barton just says, listen to me, all of you. And then we end on a full page splash of a furious Hawkeye saying, this doesn't end until every last one of them dies. You hear me? Every expletive last one of them. It's a really intense moment. And then you think about the fact that, you know, superheroes don't kill or, you know, that, that trope. But Clint Barton is swearing murderous vengeance on the scroll race. Yeah, he's saying this doesn't end until we've committed genocide. Yeah, so th these are the stakes. This is the emotional turmoil they've gone through. From there, we cut to the start of issue six, where the Novar Marvel boy encounters the scroll Captain Marvel. And, you know, Captain Marvel is basically saying, listen to me. They will do anything. They will lie to their own people. They will kill anyone or any. Uh, they don't, they have no honor. They don't understand the true honor of these people or the Kree. I've learned so much being Marvel. I have learned so much. You cannot let this happen. You, you are here for a reason. We are all here for a, and those are his last words, but they inspire Novar, who's ready to step forward. Here we get montages. So we see San Francisco with the X-Men facing off against the Skrulls. We see Medusa furious on Adelon, because this is the point where she found out the man she believed to be her husband was a Skrull. Basically, we're seeing key moments from all the side series and miniseries being brought to a fore. Yeah, the the Black Panther moments, Savage Land, Israel. Now, now, who is that in Israel? I, I was not sure what story that was. It, I don't recall it from any of the tie-ins, and I did get every tie-in issue to this event. I think it was just a moment that Bendis chose. I don't remember a specific Savage Land tie-in either. Okay, well, then it just helps to illustrate that it's happening all over the world. Okay. Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, you mentioned Bendis's Jewish background before. There's... You know, one major Jewish superhero who's still alive at this point, and I think he just wanted her in. Who is she? I'm blanking on her name because unfortunately she hasn't had a lot of page time like a lot of the international heroes haven't. You know, if Marvel doesn't have a great market there, then we don't see a lot of stories that take place there. But from here we go back to Camp Hammond where we see the Skrull Hank Pym discussing things with the Empress, who is Spider-Woman, and they talk about how Wasp is their last resort. We get the Avengers coming back from the Savage Land. This is both teams together. Uh, Spider-Man trying to cope with humor. 
as he does. But when they get to Manhattan and they have the overhead, not really skyline because they're overhead, but the city view, it is just a wreck because, you know, major landmarks have been destroyed. The Fantastic Four Baxter building is still glowing with a weird sphere on top. And there are invasion ships hovering over the city. And this is the site that the Avengers return to. Yeah. And it's, as would probably be the case in real life, we've got humans here saying, no, we need the scrolls. This is right. And then lightning comes down in Central Park. And the Avengers realize this is Thor. He is back. And Thor meets the new Captain America, but they're basically saying, yeah, you know, weren't you dead? Weren't you dead? Who are you? And what are you doing, Thor? I'm summoning the battle that must be fought. And the Skrulls are here. The Thunderbolts show up. The Hood and his team show up. Nick Fury and his team show up. Spider-Woman is saying, your hate is your own. Your judgment is your own. We are here to save you. We are here to change you. We are here because in spite of all that you've done to our empire, he loves you. Spider-Man's going, uh, he who? God. To which Nick Fury responds, yeah, well, my God has a hammer. <laughs> and then we get Avengers assemble with everybody there on a two-page spread. The Thunderbolts, both Avengers teams, the surviving initiative members, the young Avengers, Nick Fury and his secret warriors. There's a two-page spread as they assemble, and then a two-page spread as they go head-to-head with the Skrulls. So it's like the entire Avengers concept, which at this point includes the supervillain community, have all come together the human race as, as, you know, a unified whole represented through the superhuman branches have come together to stop the Skrull invasion. Oh, yes. This is very much a battle for Earth, and they know it. So we've got Griffin. We've got the Hood. We've got people coming in here fighting. We've got Matt Gargan going, Spider-Man's right there. And Norman Osborn saying, only the Skrulls. But Spider-Man's right there. Only the Skrulls. So in issue seven, the battle is going full tilt. We have got... Varanka here. We've got Nick Fury and Norman Osborn fighting, like watching each other's backs with their guns out. Fury, Norman, you should be in jail. So should you. Right, we cut back to the the Wasp in her combat. We see Yellow Jacket as the Skrull. We see Stature fighting. We see Bullseye resisting the urge to kill Spider-Man and going after the others. We see Daredevil involved. We see the Hood. Like everybody's here. Yellow Jacket gets massively huge as he goes after the Wasp. But I think he's doing that to help encourage the Wasp to do what she needs to do. Yeah. We've got Spider-Man and Iron Fist. And Iron Fist hasn't really been involved in a lot of the major events aside from... Well, actually, no. You know what? Iron Fist was replaced by a completely different Skrull for completely different reasons during Secret Wars 2. This is Iron Fist's first major event. Oh, no. Sorry. He was involved in Civil War, but he was wearing someone else's mask. Yes. But yeah, Spider-Man's there going, hey, you know what? This ain't so bad, all things considered. Iron Fist is going, how is that exactly? Spider-Man, these big earth shakers, I've been around them. You know you have to worry is when Uatu shows up. Who? The Watcher. Big alien bald guy in charge of watching when truly insane stuff happens. He's not here, so that must mean they're going to be okay and... Oh, come come on! on. He turns around and there's the Watcher. (laughs) Yes. He has sort of little person proportions to him, doesn't he? Looking at his hands and and just, you know, the I don't know. But of course he's very, very big. This is this is great. It is. And we cut from there back to Jessica Jones with Danielle Cage and the Jarvis, who is a Skrull, but Jessica doesn't know it. And Jessica's saying, okay, baby, mommy has to go do the right thing for once in her life. I'm going to go help your daddy. And she leaves the baby with Jarvis. Now, does that mean that the Jarvis back on the helicarrier was a different Jarvis? 
I believe this is the same Jarvis. Because I thought that thing blew up. Yeah. Well, they, there is a step. There is established precedent for them, the scrolls replacing themselves with other scrolls. But yeah, this Jarvis like has, the Freds from GI Joe. Yeah, there were multiple Yellow Jackets, for example. But yeah, so when Jessica leaves the baby with Jarvis, I actually this is a great Jarvis moment, both for the respect that he commands from the Avengers and for the tension it has because we know he's a scroll. Yeah, it's it's great. There's a similar weightiness to the scene in uh, issue one. Before you know that Jarvis is a scroll and he and Spider Woman are watching events and they're the only ones in the, in the room and, and they're like giving each other looks. But here, yeah, she gives him the baby and we as the reader are like, oh, don't do that. But Jarvis is just, he's, he's the butler. He's going to take care of Jessica Jones's child. Yeah. Possibly indefinitely. It's just, will you please look after Danielle? Yes. You understand what I'm asking. You understand we may not come back. I understand completely. So she's basically saying, if we don't come back, raise our child. Right. And his, his words have double meaning because he is fully willing to do this in both cases. Yeah. And so we cut back to the fight. It's not going well. Iron Man is going back for some old school armor that they can't get into. You see something streaking in just going, is that? Nick Fury yells incoming. And then there's a massive explosion that just rocks the whole thing. Marvel Boy standing in the middle, glowing eyes saying, my name is Novar. I am a warrior of the Kree. In the name of Captain Marvel, in the name of the Kree Empire, I tell you invading hordes that this fight is over. And Norman Osborn and Nick Fury are right there. That's our cue, guys. Or that's our cue, guys. And dolls, hit them high, hit them low. Thunderbolts, take the front line. Have at thee. Right. It's all right here. And Jessica Jones says, baby couldn't be safer. Oh, and you were right about the scroll thing. Oh, yeah, because that's a good moment for them. A, she's getting involved in superheroics whenever she usually has sworn that off. Luke Cage and she usually go around and round on the fact that he's still doing super heroics and she's not. But she's fighting and <laughs> she gives him a you are right moment, which he's like, she admitted I was right. All of a sudden, it's the best day of my life. <laughs> yeah, with all this going on, they're saving the Hawkeyes. The real Hawkeye dressed as Ronan is taking out multiple scrolls at a shot. Not the real Hawkeye. Well, the original or the male Hawkeye, but they're both real Hawkeyes. Yeah, by that I meant uh, not Skrull Hawkeye. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with Kate Bishop whatsoever. Yeah, everything is right with Kate Bishop. Yeah. And then we're getting into the fight, and this is where we start to see what they had planned for the Wasp. Because many, many issues ago, I think it might even be the first issue of Mighty Avengers, Hank Pym was trying to reconcile with Janet Van Dyne and gave her a growth serum. Only now we know that Hank Pym was a Skrull. And it was a weird, tense moment at the time because their relationship is weird and he's trying to give her a birthday present and she feels like he's being a bit of a creeper, but he, he, he feels like he's trying to be sincere. So she's like, okay, well, thanks. Go away now. Appreciate it though. But goodbye. Seriously, go. And so now she brings out that growth formula and decides to become giant woman. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go well. No, she actually becomes a biological weapon of mass destruction, killing everyone in range. And when they cover this in issue eight, it's using a literary device that Bendis enjoys that I'm not as much of a fan of, where it's being narrated by someone looking at it in the aftermath. The issue I have with that is it basically tells you, like it guarantees their survival and kind of undermines, I think, some of the emotional tension. But Thor uses Mjolnir to send Janet Van Dyne away into some alternate dimension. I love the speech captions that we get in green 
saying that, you know, you probably saw the footage. She wasn't the only one. Everyone who wasn't puking up their lungs tried to help her, or tried to get to her, to help her. It seemed that the wasp herself was trying to get away. In her dying breath, she was trying to save lives and take out enemies, but she was killing us, human and scroll alike. There was only one way to stop it. That doesn't make her death any less tragic. An Avenger, a founding member, and they got her. Thing is, I don't know if the Skrulls, for all their planning, truly understand us as humans. Because I think if they did, they'd know that whether or not a stunt like that would have worked, whoever survived, whoever was left, would be insanely ticked off. And that last panel is cutting in to Norman Osborn cocking a weapon, gritting his teeth, Bullseye pointing, Ares brandishing his weapon, Thor furious behind Ares. And Wolverine is insanely snicked off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is. (laughs) Yeah, he's got the claws out. Thunderbolt is upset. Captain America, the new one, is mad. We've got the hood and and his other villains are mad. Spider-Man, Daredevil, Nick Fury, they're all here and they're charging. And just as they're about to all go after her, one person gets the kill shot. Yes. And this is like less than a second before Wolverine cuts her head off. She gets shot in the head by Norman Osborn. And then from there, it's cleanup. Apparently, without the Empress, who they knew could die, they weren't able to mount an adequate defense against Earth's combined heroes. And one of the craft out there that Iron Man finds and guides down is filled with all the people they replaced. S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, the actual Jarvis, the real Mockingbird, the real Elektra, Black Bolt, they're all back. The Hood mentions to his guys that, you know, if I may, I think this is a good time as any to leave and get some agreement from them. They take off only... This is where Jessica Jones sees the real Jarvis coming out of the spacecraft, and she realizes their baby is gone. Dum Dum Dugan and the Contessa see Nick Fury, but he doesn't react to them. He just disappears. They don't realize he's going underground. We do get a bit of a happy ending now that we know Daniel Cage is gone. We find out that, yeah, the kids are safe. The Fantastic Four miniseries, I believe it was three issues that tied in. Fairly well done. Brings back Lyja, who was the scroll that Human Torch married for a while. The Baxter building essentially rebuilds himself in a contingency plan. We find out that things are not okay between Thor and Iron Man. But the one that really sets this off and starts the next era of Marvel is the end when the president announces that S.H.I.E.L.D. is no longer viable. It is being dismantled. Let this happen. Everything that used to be the responsibility of S.H.I.E.L.D. is being absorbed into a new agency that's under the direct control of Norman Osborn. And the miniseries ends with him meeting with Namor... Emma Frost, Doctor Doom, The Hood, and Loki, the genuine Loki, who was in a female body at this time for reasons that are best explained in JMS's Thor run, rather than trying to do it here. It's it's an insanely intriguing ending because you've seen Norman Osborn leading the Thunderbolts. You've seen him wrestling with his inner psyche, but he's trying to be a decent leader. Not that altruistic, but, you know a decent leader of a team and he takes out the scroll queen and he's put in charge of the superheroes. And it almost feels like as surreal as it is having Norman freaking Osborn in charge of the superheroes. It almost feels like, okay, l- let's see what he's got. But then you turn the page and he goes downstairs and he meets with his cabal. And it's just such a great moment as he's like, okay, thanks for meeting with me. It's a new day. Listen carefully. This is how it's going to be. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. And then you get the ad for Dark Rain Begins here on the, on the, on one of the back pages where you have that same cabal of 
you know, the various branches of the supervillain contingents. And it's just such a great ending. So many things. So, so, so many things. Oh, yeah. I mean, we went a little heavy on the plot synopsis, especially for something that's all third act. But I think some of that is just there's so many great moments. I wanted to make sure we covered them all. Here's the thing about Brian Michael Bendis. Whether his story ideas appeal to the reader or not, he is really great at moments. He is really awesome at putting character and emotional weight and depth into so much of his stories. And they resonate. And maybe you like the overall direction of his stories, maybe you don't. And, and yeah, in order to do that, in order to have so much emotional weight and so much depth, he chooses to take his time with stories and spread moments out. Uh, so it feels a bit more like watching a TV moment. The problem with watching a TV moment is those take time and to convey the time, you have to do extra panels. So anyways, Bottom line is, he's one of the most decompressed writers in comics today. But gosh, when you take a story that he's done and read it as a chunk after the fact, it is often a very rewarding and satisfying reading experience, even if it was a bit frustrating in the month-to-month format that it originally came out in. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. This is one of those moments where one of the other things he excels with is seeing the big picture and working with it. I think one of the reasons he's had a lot of success at Marvel is because he's one of the ones that's most open to collaboration. So he just doesn't want to tell his story. He wants to tell a story that fits in the shared universe. And he's willing to sort of, you know, shift and pull and tug to make everything fit together. And this is one of those cases where that has worked very, very well. We've done the plot synopsis. Part of the significance, as we said, is the status quo this leaves us in. I was able to predict some of it. We knew that after this, we'd have what we call Dark Reign. We knew that following this, there were a couple of things going on. Uh, War Machine, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., was just becoming War Machine. Nick Fury was coming back in Secret Warriors, and the tagline was Secret. Oh, was uh, Nick Fury, Agent of Nothing. Iron Man, Director of S.H.I.E.L.D., at the point he had two series going on, Iron Man, Director of S.H.I.E.L.D. was coming to a close. Yeah. It was just going to be Invincible Iron Man after this. It is. So between what I saw with Norman Osborn there and you know with what was going on with the solicits, I did r- figure out that shield was going to be replaced with something under Norman Osborn's lead. Like at, at first I thought it was, yeah, Norman Osborn was going to be director of shield because of some of the comments, like what was building up in the story and how things are being positioned. And then I realized, wait a minute, there is no mention of shield whatsoever. Yeah. So this led into the hammer era, the Nick Fury, that secret warriors that I mentioned, which starts in the cabal, which was a special that came out after dark rain, the cabal talked about that meeting that they had. We go from there into the 28 issue Secret Warriors run, we had Nick Fury's The List, or the, the list with all the things that Norman Osborn had as his to do list when he was running Hammer. I would actually say that one of my favorite runs of Nick Fury is that Secret Warriors, which is available in omnibus format. And I, if I were the only person coming up with the list of top 75 Marvels, it would be in the top 25. I think that was a great run. It's a direct result of this. Some things that may or may not be a tie-in. This dark reign with Norman Osborn in charge lasted until Siege. Yeah, this was an, this was an era of um, Marvel using banner status statuses quo, where they would. It wasn't so much an, Avengers and the Initiative was not an event; it was a status quo for a while, and they just slapped that label on a lot of their books for a while. This was the dark reign era, 
Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so much that Dark Reign was an event, it's just that Dark Reign was a, was a, the way things are in Marvel now. And you had this feeling of things in Marvel constantly shifting and changing. And for a year, this is what they were. Captain America, Bucky Cap, you know, finally became involved with the Avengers in a bigger way. And Ms. Marvel, which was, you know, that 50 issue series by Brian Reed, this caused her to launch into a thing where she kind of, she kind of went not underground because she was still involved in the team books, but in her solo book, she took a much more subdued role and approach to her, her activities. And yeah. Yeah. This was a huge thing for Iron Man. Oh, world's most wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he was the list of superhero identities that he had. Norman Osborn wanted, and he didn't realize that the list was being kept in Tony Stark's head. He did not have it written down or otherwise obtainable to the point that he had to reboot his brain following an annual written by Kurt Busiek a while ago where they were, you know, his secret identity was hidden by rebooting people's brains with satellites. After that happened, we found out Madame Mask was backing up her brain to avoid mind control. And she was periodically rewriting her brain with what it used to be when she was confident she was herself. Iron Man had that same technology, but his last backup was several years old. So he avoided giving this information to Norman Osborn by rebooting his brain from an old backup, but that meant he forgot a lot of the events that happened lately. And the the lead-up to that reboot was a very protracted, on-the-run storyline for uh, Tony Stark that was, that was pretty suspenseful, if maybe a little bit too long. Yeah, it was it was very well handled. But for me, the one that seemed, in a lot of ways, it seems to tie in most closely, even though there was no banner on it whatsoever, was actually Jason Aaron's Ghost Rider. I don't know if it's coincidental or not, but what was going on in Ghost Rider is that an angel named Zadkiel had looked at Lucifer's attempt to take over heaven and failing and figured, I can learn from those mistakes and I can do this well. The last issue of Secret Invasion came out within a week of the first issue of that story arc where Zadkiel had overthrown God and was sitting on the throne and was running heaven. That's pretty intense. It is. And that led into the Heavens on Fire arc that ended Jason Aaron's run with the tagline, Save the Antichrist, Save the World. <laughs> you know, it was the same time as the first season of Heroes with Save the True, Save the World Everywhere. The idea was that in order for Zadkiel to really take over as God, he didn't just have to sit on the throne, he had to derail God's plan. And his way to do that was by killing the Antichrist, who was still a very young boy. So Ghost Rider had to go protect the Antichrist to protect God's plan and get God back on the throne. And that came to a culmination in the original Judeo-Christian God went back on the throne and started running the Marvel Universe again the month that Siege launched. So right when the good God is back on there, the heroes are going, you know what, we've had enough of this Norman Osborn, he's getting the boot. And I, So I don't know if that was coincidental or not, but I think it actually lines up quite nicely for storytelling, whether it was accidental or otherwise. But this did lead to a lot. This set the stage for Shadowland, which was the Daredevil-centric event, right? Because it was the Norman Osborn, the List miniseries that really pushed Daredevil over the edge against Bullseye and made him open to killing his greatest adversary. This was just launched a huge and very different era of Marvel. The one character you would think would have a huge impact on, Norman Osborn being the top cop, actually had very little impact in that Spider-Man. Yeah. Other than ramifications for Harry, which led to one three-part story that I forget exactly what it was, where Harry actually gets like a suit. American Son? American Son. I knew the word Son was in there. I can't remember the first word. Yeah, American Son. Other than that, there's not a whole lot of fallout in Spider-Man's title for the fact that his arch nemesis now runs the world. 
Yeah, well, he did have, uh, yeah, it wasn't in the main title, but he did have another list entry as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he had little stuff, but just as far as his ongoing narrative. Uh, big ramifications for the Punisher in the list miniseries that followed from this. That was the one where he got chopped up by Dokken and led to Frankencastle. Oh, okay. I knew that happened. I, I haven't read the story. I didn't know anything about how and why it happened. Yeah, I read every issue of the list, and I my favorite of that is probably the Nick Fury issue. So, Gotcha. Yeah. I would track down that entire Secret Warriors run if you're listening to this. Because, yeah, you may disagree that it's in the top 20 or top 25, but I think we can all find something on the list that it should replace. Right, and now for the part of the podcast that I have so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which everyone should be listening to. They're doing a great job walking through every televised or theatrically released Star Trek ever. We look for messages, morals, and meanings, and if there's any deeper meanings here. Uh, now, one thing that to me, stands out is the dangers of the extremism and religious intolerance, because that's what we have. We've got a small sect of the Skrulls who have gone to religious extremes, and that is the cause of this invasion, as well as so many of the problems that we're having in the world today. It's the vocal and extreme minority of a belief system that are messing things up for everybody. I'll be honest. The parallels with the 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 cultural... I don't know how to how to describe it without using some incendiary uh, language, but the cultural fear that we have been experiencing ever since 2001 and the parallels between that and this never even occurred to me until I heard somebody mention it in passing within the last probably six months. Yes, obviously there is a religious tone to this, and certainly, if you want to be fair towards uh, religious cultures, we should label this as extremism. Mm -hmm. But the idea of it paralleling the um, the religious extremism attack situations that we've been dealing with is such a strong word, but certainly fearing for the last decade and a half, I didn't even think about. <laughs> and 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 I, I I hesitate to draw the ideas too tightly because. This story takes those thoughts and fears to a point that I hope we never end up going, which is where the entire world is scared that they might be among us. And so we all bandy to attack them. Yeah. And it's a conversation I'm not comfortable having in a public forum, but, but certainly Bendis is playing with those ideas that exists in the real world, but he's doing it in a story that is very, very much not an allegory of the real world. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's even reading it. I didn't, I knew that it was religious based. I didn't pick up on the extremism and terrorism until issue eight when we've got Hulkling and Kate. So that the new Hawkeye and Hulkling or Teddy have a conversation where she, Kate's asking, you okay, Teddy? And his response is, Kate, even with the little I know about my heritage, I know this isn't what the Skrull Empire stands for. This was extremism. This was terrorism. So to me, it's almost like the cautionary tale. You know, I, I feel that's like, you know, Bendis basically saying, don't blame all Muslims for what this tiny little proportion of them have been doing. Tiny, tiny proportion of them. Yeah. Yeah. If, if that was all Muslims, they'd be the only ones left because they've got the numbers. As John Oliver said, if you're looking at percentages, compare it to peanuts. The amount of people that peanuts have killed gives them a larger percentage of culpability than religious extremists do for their varying religions. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's what we have here. So this, I mean, it, it's a great story because of the nature of the Skrulls and the replacements. And I noticed in the Cup of Joe columns here, I was wrong about the Death of Electra. It wasn't issue 41, it was 31. I think they were up to issue 41 or so at the time. We had about 10 issues building up to this event. But yeah, that's a lot of what this is. He just said, yeah, that's out there. And he used that as some of the inspiration, but it's really about the Skrulls. And it's about what it does to the heroes and how they cope with it if they don't know what it is. Because frankly, if you were the Skrulls and you have an empire, this probably is the way you would build it, right? Skrull sleeper agents, I don't know why we saw non-sleepers. Like those four Skrulls in issue, or in Fantastic Four number two, which was referenced here, where they said, you know, perhaps you should have thought about that before you turned our friends into cows. Right. Right. This, it's a nice little segue to that. but. Like, this is the way I would expect the Skrulls to appear the first time, which is how the Chitari first appeared in the Ultimates, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and the Chitari were at the time basically the Skrulls under another name, and then Ultimate Continuity did stuff with that idea. But yeah, you would expect from an in-continuity, in-universe perspective that if the Skrulls were going to infiltrate a planet, that it would be this. And and maybe, I don't know, maybe the Fantastic Four issue 2 was an early, clumsy attempt to do just that. Maybe. I mean, because they were sort of infiltrating and replacing the Fantastic Four, but I think that's more... You, you know what? You know what? Maybe the Skrulls didn't even consider Earth worth bothering about. So they sent four of their worst, least competent people to go and do that over there because they didn't want them involved in more important missions. It could be, but I mean, we've already had... At that point, we already had Generation... Well, Generation Lost was published later, but at that point in continuity, there already had been Skrulls on Earth. Okay. And had been for a while. And that's like the early recon missions were usually done when they saw someone developing, but before they could detect landing spacecraft and the scrolls would come and take on the form of the locals and just try to learn enough about the culture to come back and report and say, what stage of development are they at? Are they going to be a threat to us? So like Federation and Star Trek, they have signposts of technological and cultural development that they watch for. And then they move into action whenever they see those. They do now. They have a, a different history if you go back and read. Yeah, the Skrulls and the Kree have been at war for a long time, as people know, because John and I discussed the Kree-Skrull War a while ago. Hey. But the Skrulls were one of the first starfaring races, and they would just, you know, show up at a planet that had intelligent life, and they were very, the Skrulls were very peaceful at the time, and just hand over technology to the dominant life form. And the Kree, and I believe the Kotadi, the sentient plants that were a big part of Mantis and the Celestial Madonna storyline developed on the same world, and the scroll said, okay, we don't know which one of you guys is dominant, so, you know, we'll do a contest, we'll come back. The Krees lost that contest, but they were very warlike barbarians, and they essentially killed the scrolls and stole the technology and started their empire that way. And that's what turned the scrolls into a starfaring race. They became, or into a warfaring race, they became a warrior race to defend themselves against the Kree who were warriors and attacking the Skrulls with their own technology. So really, Secret Invasion is all the Kree's fault. In a lot of ways, yeah. But Captain Marvel was like, in the name of the Kree Empire, this stops now. Yep. And yet, without the Kree influence, the Skrulls would have still been pacifists. And, and really, I, I, I don't know a lot about my, my cosmic Marvel history past the 1970s, but saying this war stops now in the name of the Kree Empire, is that really as incongruous as it sounds? Yeah, the Kree, they started off very warlike. They've become a little more peaceful, partly because of their influence of Captain Marvel and, and what they learned from Marvel. But 
yeah, they are incredibly capable of war, but they do like to have peace on their worlds. So, you know, if the Kree decide they want your world and there's a war on it, they, they will show up and say, yeah, in the name of the Kree Empire, this war stops now. You are now a part of the Kree Empire. You are citizens. You will stop fighting amongst ourselves and you will do what we tell you to do. <laughs> All right. Stop fighting your own wars. Now you fight ours. Yeah. But that, I don't, aside from the, you know, don't brand an entire group of people based on the extremist minority and possibly believe in yourself and stay true to yourself, which is sort of the lesson learned by both Tony Stark and the Skrull Captain Marvel. I'm not really seeing a lot of other messages here. No, this is this is super heroic adventure, at, in my opinion, at its finest, without a whole lot of morality play going on. But you're right, there are some of those key moments that do tie into the humanity of the characters in ways that are, are resonant. And that's part of what makes the story good. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I would say so. This is one, when we talk about why it landed on this point in the rankings, I think it's, there's three categories that we look at. There's entertainment, there's continuity importance, and there's the message. This is not here because of the messages. If you're not looking for messages, it's easy to not find them. Right. And I wasn't, and I didn't. Yeah. This is here because it's a huge piece of Marvel continuity for the past decade, and because it is very well told. We've got some of my favorite moments here, like Nick Fury showing up and saying, let's turn this thing around. Again, Nick Fury, well, my God has a hammer. These are just some great lines of dialogue. Such a great moment. <laughs> Especially as he's standing right behind Thor. Yeah, well, my God has a hammer. Yeah, just so much of it comes in. And then, as I said, launching the Dark Reign after this with the Secret Warriors. And I believe this was right at the point where Hickman took over the Fantastic Four. It wasn't it, or was the bridge later? Was that coming out of Siege instead? I may be misremembering that. I don't remember the continuity on that exactly. Yeah, there's just so much that we 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 talked about it a little bit in you know House of M about how that set the stage. So you know, without House of M, we wouldn't have Avengers versus X Men. This is part of that chain. This is the era of Marvel where we get event linked to the next event linked to the next event with those branded status quos in between them. Right. This went from Dark Reign to Siege to the Heroic Age. And also to Shadowland as sort of the, the side event along the way for the street level heroes that was Daredevil centric. And and to be fair, it led with some readers to, I think, an understandable event fatigue. I think though that what we're seeing here is a very big change in the way that comics are being told. There's not really a status quo for very many characters anymore. It's all about change and the semblance of change and keeping the stories dynamic and hopefully interesting to the reader. So the universe as a whole is doing that. And that's not a very old phenomenon at this point in Marvel's history. I think I, I tend to, I tend to link that shift in storytelling with Bendis's coming on to the Avengers. And maybe that's artificial and not fair and, and, and betraying my ignorance of what was going on in Marvel before Bendis came on the Avengers. But that, that's where I tend to link it. Yeah, the few years immediately before that were the, the immediate post-bankruptcy years when, you know, the comics in the 90s had been so intertwined that when people were dropping one, they started dropping 20. And that's what sent Marvel into bankruptcy, right? Spider-Man and X-Men were both selling huge and paying a lot of Marvel's bills. And then when the numbers dropped on both franchises, they dropped on the franchise as a whole rather than one title. And that was one of the major things that led them into the bankruptcy era. Coming out of that with Joe Quesada's editor-in-chief, there weren't a lot of interconnections. And that didn't start again until Bendis came on and sales on his books were healthy enough 
that they felt they could tie it into other books that were selling that well, such as, you know, Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men, which connected up with through House of M. Right. So yeah, I don't think it's that artificial to say Bendis is there. It's he was the one that was first in there wanting to work with other writers and writing stories that were selling enough that it justified to the the bean counters and pencil pushers that yeah, it's time to take that risk again. And I I think this worked because well, this wasn't quite as big as Civil War. And when we get to episode two and discuss Civil War, we'll talk about how and why it became as big as it did in terms mm-hmm. of the sheer number of tie-in comics. But this is one of the larger ones. Yeah, because this series definitely emulates Civil War in just the vast spread of tie-ins. It is. Those were two events where they were entirely justified in connecting all the books to it. And if you didn't want to interrupt your narrative to tell the story, they came up with the idea of, oh, well, let's just have a miniseries for this character that, that connects in with the events. And either the writer of the continuity or the reader on his own or her own can figure out how they fit together. Yeah. And sometimes you can have things being pulled into events that don't really feel like they belong there. The one that really stands out to me is the Moon Knight tie-in in Civil War. I don't know. Did you read that that issue? I, I would have done because I read the entire Gate Corp DVD, but I don't know enough about Moon Knight to, to really have had a, the schema to make that land in my brain and stay there. Essentially, the entire Civil War tie-in is when Moon Knight is off on his own saying, I don't care about registration. I just want to do my own thing. And then the second half of the issue is Captain America showing up saying, you know what? You are too psychologically unstable. Stay out of this. I don't want you involved. And walking <laughs> away. So his entire involvement in Civil War was saying, I don't want to be involved. And Captain America showing up saying, I don't want you involved. Mark Spector's like, I'm not going to be. Cap's like, okay, I'm going to hold you to that and leaves. Like, And the Moon Knight story keeps on going. Yeah. It's not quite as bad as you know what they call the Red Sky crossovers. Right. You know, we talked about the, the Red Sky during Crisis during the Galactus Trilogy podcast. But for those who don't know, the Red Sky crossover was something that a lot of creators complained about during the original Crisis on Infinite Earths. I don't know which book it was, but the creative team was very shocked to find an issue that they wrote that wasn't part of Infinite Crisis or Crisis on Infinite Earths published with a Crisis on Infinite Earths tie-in banner. And they opened it up and flipped through it and found out that, yeah, their story that just completely ignored the event hadn't been changed at all, but the colorist had colored the sky red. Oh, I didn't really... I knew about the red sky just showing up as a non-important part of the story. I didn't realize that that was done without the writer's awareness. Yeah, because the skies had turned red in Christ and Infinite Earth, and the people doing the main miniseries knew that. Marketing wanted more tie-ins. So towards the end of the, of the miniseries, one of the books that was basically trying to do its own thing had the skies colored red and got the, the brand on it to try and sell more books. Interesting. Okay. I can see how that would be annoying. Yeah. So that's where the Red Sky crossover came from. So that's what this is. And I this is one I can easily recommend, although I would actually say if you're reading along with this podcast and trying to figure out what to read, I wouldn't jump directly to Secret Invasion. I might be tempted to read Avengers and New Avengers and Mighty Avengers by Bendis, read Civil War in place, and then come to this one naturally. That's what I did. I read – I started with Disassembled and I read New Avengers – I plugged in Civil War and I plugged in House of M where they went and then read up to Secret Invasion with the whole infiltration prelude and everything else. So that was a very satisfying reading experience. And I felt like it had me up to date on that era of Marvel since the Avengers were becoming the backbone of the of the, uh, the company at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. That's 
I think that would be the most rewarding experience. You can just jump in and read this as it is, but trying to do that, let's say that you were jumping in on this after being out of comics for 10 years and just read Secret Invasion. Like the way you started reading this, John, if you hadn't been able to go back and read those back issues, I don't know how much you'd have been able to follow with Novar showing up with the Hood and his crew because the Hood did not exist exist 10 years earlier. Right. The Thunderbolts were a very different team 10 years earlier. You know, Norman Osborn was not generally having conversations with the president. Well, it's one of those things that, you know, I was coming into 2008 as a person who already liked comics, but was entering the new world fresh. And what I did a lot of is ask my friends who are comics fans, because I was working with a couple of guys who were up to no good, started making trouble in my neighborhood. But I also had the internet. And so while I was sitting there in my call center waiting for calls to come in, I did a lot of Wikipedia reading and a lot of Googling of concepts. And I don't think that a comic reader should have to do homework to understand a story. Mm -hmm. But I think a new comic reader who's coming into the thick of things has a lot of resources at her disposal that we didn't have 20 years ago, whenever you and I were first getting into all this, or 30 years ago, whenever it was. Yeah. So I think it's natural for writers of comics to begin to to take for granted the idea that the modern reader has a lot of information at hand. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not difficult to find answers to the questions you're looking for. But as you said, it should not be the responsibility of the reader to do the homework. And, you know, Bendis does have, you know, a fair amount of, of backstory in here. It's just, I think it could have been a little bit more, right? Reed mentions more than once that the Skrulls couldn't do it without his brain. They don't even attempt an explanation for that in these eight issues. No, if you read the event, you'll get that bit, but you don't really get that explanation in this story. No. Yeah, there's there's just a lot that's left off, but it wasn't structured that way. This was structured as the final act in a big tapestry. It was meant, in, in Bendis' mind, this was going to be another arc of the Avengers. And had you been reading this in Avengers, probably a, a new Avengers, Mighty Avengers crossover, then... You know, if you've got someone who's been writing this issue since issue one, or this this title since issue one, you're only like 20 or 30 issues into it, so four or five story arcs, I think then it is reasonable, right? If I jump in on a writer's third story arc, I don't necessarily expect that writer to recap their first two. Right. We were more like in the 40s by this point. In fact, I, I almost wonder if Bendis didn't envision this as somehow building up to episode 50 in a really big way. That probably ended up getting changed once this became a larger universe thing, because then issue 50 became a big clash between the new Avengers and the Dark Avengers. But it might, it might have gone differently in his head whenever he was thinking about it ahead of time. It, it might have. If you look at the issues that had the Secret Invasion branding on them, we've got the, you know, the infiltration that you mentioned in Illuminati issue five. So that five issue miniseries ends with that. The Avengers, the initiative annual. Mighty Avengers starts infiltration with issue 7, and New Avengers starts infiltration with 39. The Captain Marvel series with uh, the Skrull who thinks he's Marvel kicks in with issue 4. Miss Marvel with 25. Oh, New Avengers actually 38 and 39 are there. Sorry, my database apparently does not have the actual release date for issue 38. So when I sorted them that way, it showed up out of order. And then the next one to show up was Secret Invasion number 1. So the Mighty Avengers were in their... Coming in with issue 12, they came back. Miss Marvel was in there. So yeah, they were just before issue 40 when this all came tying in. And then we get, you know, some of the other tie-ins were very interesting. We get the God Squad. So the Incredible Hercules tie-in, 
was the pantheon of gods in the Marvel Universe taking on the Skrull gods, saying, hey, Earth is ours. We don't want our people, you know, our followers worshiping you instead. We've got uh, Captain Britain and MI-13 running into the secret invasion in actually partway through one of their story arcs. So yeah, there was a lot that showed up in here, a lot of tie-ins. There was Frontline, there was Deadpool. So my database includes multiple covers of an issue, but it's got 172 comics branded Secret Invasion. Right. That's quite the spread. It is. And there was not quite that many. I think the the biggest event I've seen was about 132 issues crossing over with Civil War. So a big chunk of that would be because the first issue sold well enough, it got multiple printings and like 15 different covers. But the way I approach events like this is there there are two different ways of doing it. You you have the backbone series, whether that be its own miniseries like Secret Invasion or the primary, you know, characters series might form the backbone of the event. And then you only read you only really need to read the other tie-ins that you care about. Mm-hmm. There's no real reason to read about the gods of the scrolls fighting with Hercules unless you want to. Yeah. So you know, you sometimes hear the event that it, you hear the complaint that events take hundreds of dollars to collect. Well, yeah, if you want to indulge your collector's gene, but if you just want to read the story, then just just read the story and read the characters you care about and anything else that seems interesting at the time. Yeah, this is one of the things that makes Marvel Digital Unlimited so great. If you're willing to wait six months, you will have every tie-in and you can pick and choose from there. Yes, which was not really the situation when the series was coming out, I don't think. But the digital, no. the, the Marvel Unlimited app has really come into its own since then. Yeah, the Marvel Digital Unlimited, it may or may not have been launched. It was announced at this point. I do know that the, the GitCorp license got pulled in 2007, or late 2007. This came out in mid-2008. So they did not get to make a Secret Invasion DVD, but they did make a Civil War DVD. Yep. There's a Civil War DVD, a House of M DVD, and then DVDs for a number of the characters that had movies. So Fantastic Four, Silver Surfer, Ghost Rider, Captain America, Hulk, X-Men, Avengers, Iron Man, Spider-Man. They're all in there. But anyway, I think that's covered pretty much everything that we intended to cover. I think it's pretty clear that we would both say, go read this and possibly read more as well. Yeah, it's... It's solid superheroic action. The only two, uh, I guess as closing remarks, the only two caveats I think I have to my enjoyment of this are that so much of your major action does not involve your A-list players because they're tied up in the Savage Land. Now, what they're doing in the Savage Land, I find really engaging and emotionally intriguing because that's where you have a lot of the, the person I love is really a scroll dynamics coming out but i think at the same time bendis is bringing to the forefront a lot of second string characters that don't often get star star rolling screen time oh yeah this launched actually the probably the big title that we should mention that launched out of this was the dark avengers title where a lot of these villains so the thunderbolts novar these were a team of avengers led by norman osborne in the Iron and, Patriot and I love armor. that new Avengers moment when they're sitting there watching TV and they're like, wait a second, these Avengers, they're the Thunderbolts. And Spider-Man's like, Venom is going around pretending to be me. It was just, it was just such a great moment. Yeah, it is. It is very well done. Again, the Daredevil fan of me remembers Bullseye becoming the new Hawkeye. Like, it, yeah. The, the, other, the other caveat I was going to say is the narrative structure of the, uh, the last issue um, the whole bit with Giant Woman Wasp is confusing. 
is there's not a lot of the imagery there, the art is not nearly as explicit as I would like to understand just what's going on with her. And while there is narration that explains it, the narration is also saying a whole lot of other stuff during those scenes. Mm -hmm. So you get your explanation in little tidbits spread throughout a whole bunch of other talk. And there is the after the fact epilogue narration device that is sometimes effective. Sometimes I didn't mind it so much here, but I can see why it'd be a problem. Harbinger Wars did that throughout the entire event and Harbinger Wars is narrated by an interview that happens nine days later. And so that's, that's, that's a bit of a weird storytelling device, but I don't mind it too much here. Anyway, so John, thank you for joining us once again. It was, it was, it was great to be here. This is one of the things I've been most looking forward to talking about the entire time we've been doing this series. Secret Invasion is my jam. <laughs> so I was very, very happy to come and talk. I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Oh, yeah. We're always glad to have you on. And we will hear from John again. You've got a few more episodes coming. So we say he's the most prolific guest host and a lot of his show up in these top 20. So Yeah, so I hope you don't hate me because I'm going to be coming back a lot. So uh, in the meantime, please remember to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you're using. It really does help the shows get noticed. You can share links to the episodes with friends who you think may enjoy them. You can, you know, come over to Facebook and join the discussion forum and talk about the stories as they're coming and what's coming up. And finally, thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the Ant-Man before he had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found. <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast!
listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. <laughs>